Well, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. There's a saying out there that says you don't know what you've got until it's gone. It comes up after a, a rough breakup or after a close friend maybe passes away or maybe even just when one of your favorite restaurants closes. The idea is that we have things in our life which are really special, which we should be incredibly grateful for, but which we take for granted. We just assume they'll always be there, and so we treat them with indifference. And then one day something happens to to take that special something away, and we suddenly realize how blessed we were to have it or them or whatever the case may be. And it's only then that we realize what fools we were to treat something so wonderful with such indifference. Such, I think, is the case with Scripture. We take the Scriptures for granted. A number of years back, I was teaching a class about the martyrs, and as I was teaching the class, I started to become acquainted with Polycarp of Smyrna. Uh, Polycarp was the second bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey for some perspective. Uh, Smyrna is one of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in Revelation 2, and it's one of only two that Jesus doesn't criticize. So it appears to have been a fairly solid church, and and Polycarp was its leader up until the time he died as a martyr, about halfway through the second century. He had a remarkable testimony. According to an encyclical that was written after his death, when he first learned that the authorities were looking for him, he refused to flee until his friends begged him to. And after he did run and hide and was eventually found, he refused to flee again when he was discovered, this time simply stating the will of God be done. When he was brought into the arena to be killed and the proconsul urged him to renounce Christ, he famously replied, Eighty and six years I have served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When they tried nailing him to the stake, the stake at which he would be burned, he declared, Leave me as I am, for he that that giveth me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. And so he died. In fact, it said that the flames, legend has it, that the flames refused to burn him. And so an executioner had to walk up and stab him with a dagger in order to kill him. I quickly grew to love Polycarp, and this love grew even stronger when I learned that it was said that Polycarp had personally known my favorite apostle at the time, that was the Apostle John. Remember, John died in Asia Minor, probably in the late 90s. He wrote the book of Revelation while in exile in the Isle of Patmos, which was not far from Smyrna. Uh, He evidently lived in Ephesus, uh, which was only about 50 miles from Smyrna. So apparently Polycarp at some point had become acquainted with John and was discipled by him. He learned from John himself. I mean, could could you imagine that? Could you imagine learning from the apostle John? I remember discovering that fact about Polycarp and then, and then diving into his epistles, wondering, what can I learn from the man who learned from John? I expected there would be something of value, some great new insight to learn from a man who was so intimately acquainted with one of the apostles. And what I found was a man who was saturated with Scripture. Of all the church fathers I read, Polycarp was the one who seemed to quote the Scripture most often. I thought that was pretty interesting. The man who personally knew the Apostle John didn't appeal to his own judgment. 
He didn't even appeal to his experiences with John. He appealed to the Scriptures. But when you stop to think about it, that makes sense, doesn't it? After all, when you, when you open the Gospel of John, for instance, what do you have? You have not only the very words of John himself telling you about his experiences with Christ, but you have John telling you these experiences under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that there's there's no error in what he recalls. And so that everything he writes is directed not just by what he wants to say to us, but what God wants him to tell us. Is there anything more remarkable than that, than, than to have the very words of John written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit telling us about the life of Jesus Christ? But how often, how often do we turn up our nose at that account, leave it, leave it sitting on our shelves untouched without any real interest in what John has to tell us. Only to then be suddenly intrigued, right, by the contents of, of some new pseudo-gospel or apocryphal account that we hear about in the news. We forget the treasure that we have in the Scriptures of how, how unique and important these books and letters are. This isn't, this isn't Polycarp writing to us about what John said that Jesus said. This is John himself, or or Peter himself, or Matthew himself, telling us about the things that Jesus said and did, and, and what we should do now that he's resurrected from the dead. Today we begin our exploration of the letter of James. Over the next few months, we're going to work verse by verse through this epistle, just as we did with the Gospel of Matthew. But before we go too far... I want you to understand the significance of what you're dealing with in this book. I want you to understand how special this letter is. And I want to do that so that as we consider what's written in this letter over the next few months, my my prayer is that it's going to have your attention. I don't want you to take this letter for granted. Just see it as another book of the Bible that you've probably read dozens of times before and then ignore it. No, I want you to come to this text eager to learn what James has to say to us so that he imparts, as he imparts the wisdom that he has to share with you, you're hanging on every word. I want you to be reading him with the same kind of enthusiasm that I was reading Polycarp with after I discovered his epistles for the very first time. And the way I want to do that, to, uh, the way I want to try to build your anticipation is simply by what's exploring what's written here in James 1.1, which says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, that, that, problem, that verse probably doesn't seem very remarkable to you, Right? At first blush, all it seems to be is a standard sort of greeting. It's, it's sort of like writing a, a business letter. If you've ever written one of those or seen one of those. In the standard business letter, it's not unusual to have the sending company's address listed first or perhaps it's even printed on a header. That way the recipient knows who's sending the letter. Then there's a brief address, dear Mr. or Mrs. fill in the blank, followed by some sort of greeting. That's basically what you have here. There's the sender, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the address to the 12 tribes and the dispersion and the salutation. Greetings. That's pretty basic. It couldn't be any simpler than that, right? What's, what's really there to discuss about this? I think there's more here than probably meets the eye. 
First off, look at that name one more time, James. Just James. Who is that? Who is James? There are a few different James that occur in the New Testament, so there are a few different candidates about who this could be. That could be James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' inner three disciples, for instance. He was certainly a significant figure in the life of the early church, even if he was martyred as early as Acts 12. So maybe it's that James, James the brother of John, and most probably Jesus' cousin. He's often referred to as James the Greater. He was called James the Greater to distinguish him from James the Lesser, who was also one of the twelve and is referred to as James the son of Alphaeus. He's another possible author to this letter, James the son of Alphaeus. Maybe it's an anonymous James. Obviously, James appears to have been a fairly popular name at the time. Maybe this is some James that that we don't hear about anywhere else, a James who had achieved some level of notoriety in the church and so would write a letter to the dispersion and refer to himself simply as James. These are all options, but it would appear the best evidence points to the fact that this epistle was written by Jesus' brother, who is known by the title James the Just. There are a number of reasons to think this. For example, you not only have testimony to the authorship of James the Just arising in church history as early as 253 AD, but the scripture itself seems to bear internal witness to this fact. You go to Acts 15, for instance, the Jerusalem Council, where James speaks, and he refers to Peter not by the name that he would come to be known by uh, in the church or the name by which he's referred throughout the book of Acts, which is Kephas in Aramaic or Petros in the Greek. Instead, in Acts 15, James refers to him as Simeon, which is a form of Peter's original name, Simon. This seems to indicate that the words of James' address in Acts 15 are not a paraphrase, but more of a direct dictation of what James the Just said on that occasion. The letter sent out to the Gentile churches shortly thereafter, also likely written in James's hand. And when we compare the two accounts, James' address and letter in Acts 15 uh, with the letter of James, what we're going to read here over the next few months, what we find is that stylistically they're almost, they're almost identical. They're a lot alike. I'll try to spare you a lot of the, the details of that. Uh, this is kind of more for maybe language geeks and the like. But, but there's similarity between the two accounts. Uh, for example, the, 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 uh, the open to both letters starts with a simple greetings, for instance. That's found only in Acts 15 and in James 1.1 among the apostles. No one else starts their letters that way. The phrase, brothers, listen to me, which we're going to see repeated often in James is found only in Acts 15. The word agapetos, which means beloved, occurs only one time in Acts when the letter when uh, sent to the Gentiles in Acts 15 refers to Barnabas and Paul as our beloved Barnabas and Paul. That same word occurs three different times in the six short chapters we have in James. And I could go on, but I think you see my point. Of the mere 230 words that could be attributed to James in Acts 15, there are as many as eight different unique terms or phrases that repeat themselves in this letter. So there's an internal witness to the fact that this letter is written by James the Just because it's written in his style with his vocabulary. But perhaps the greatest evidence of all to James the Just's authorship is the mere authority with which this letter is written. You see, there are some celebrities today that are so famous, right, that you, that you only have to refer to them by one name. Maybe that's a stage name, maybe that's their, their last name. In some instances, it's even, it's even just their first name. But, but you say that one name and you don't have to say anything more 
Everyone already knows who you're talking about. Elvis. Right? Oprah. LeBron. Madonna. Barack. Right? I don't have to say anything else. Their fame is so transcendent that you all know who I'm referring to simply by the one name. I don't have to refer to them as Elvis Presley or Barack Obama for you. Know which Elvis or Barack I'm talking about when I just mentioned that one name. Of course, the one thing about all those names, the one thing they share in common is that they are, in and of themselves, fairly unique names, right? I mean, how many Elvises do you really know? Or Oprahs do you really, do you really know, right? I can't just say Michael and assume that you know that I'm talking about Michael Jordan, right? Because there's a ton of famous Michaels. There's only one mega-famous LeBron, and that's LeBron James. What's unique about this letter is that it's not only written by James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, without any further description of who this James might be, but, but James actually was an incredibly common name at this point in history. And so for this James to write simply, James. James. And for him to expect his readers to know instantly who that is. He has to be an incredibly famous James among these readers. And there's only one James that can fit this description. And that's James the Just, the brother of Jesus. This may be hard for us to grasp because we don't think of James as a very important figure in the early history of the church. It's not that we think he's unimportant necessarily, but we just don't think of him as on the same level as like a Peter or a John. If we're thinking about important figures in the life of the early church, the first person that comes to our mind is is probably the Apostle Paul. The early church, though, would probably disagree with you. They would probably point right away to James. If you were to ask them, who's the most, the most notable person in the church? They would probably point to James. Did you know, if you were to ask the average member of the early church, who is the leader of the church? If you had to pick someone to serve as Pope, for instance, who would you name? Did you know that the average Christian probably wouldn't answer Paul or John or even Peter. The average Christian would probably answer James the Just. James, the brother of Jesus. He's the leader of the church. I don't know if that shocks you. It shocked me when I first had it explained to me, but it's true. I'd imagine that many of you already know that that James was considered to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem, according to what we find in Acts 15, but the evidence of the New Testament actually points to more than that. It demonstrates that James was probably viewed not simply as a leader in the church, the leader of the church in in Jerusalem, but, but no, he was the leader of the church universal. There are several passages that seem to point to this fact. For example, uh, Paul explains in Galatians 1 that when he made his first visit to Jerusalem, three years after his conversion, he saw only two people. And that is Kephas, Peter, and James, the Lord's brother. In Galatians 2, Paul notes that when he went up to Jerusalem again, 14 years later, to defend the gospel that he preached, and at that time he, he met with three men, quote, James and Kephas and John, who seemed to be pillars. I already explained as we went through Matthew the significance that Peter and John played in the early life of the church. Here, Paul not only refers to them, but he adds James to their number, and he lists James first. That that order is probably not insignificant. It's more than likely an indicator of who Paul understood was the leader of these three men. It was James. 
This point seems to be confirmed when Paul notes a a little later in chapter 2, Galatians 2, that on one visit to Antioch, Peter suddenly started to change his behavior when a group of men arrived sent by James from Jerusalem. Paul rebuked Peter for the the, the change in his behavior and Peter repented, but it would seem that, that Peter was actually kind of intimidated by this entourage sent by James enough that he thought it important to impress them with his conduct. Paul, of course, seeks a, approval for his ministry in Galatians 2 and Acts 15. And, and what's notable is that when the decision is rendered there in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, not only is it James who speaks, but after hearing the arguments from Paul and Peter, as well as some of the Christian Pharisees, James renders his decision with the words, Dio ego crino. The ESV renders that phrase, therefore my judgment. But that's not really how James says it. The way, therefore my judgment, that actually softens the force of James's words there. The way it should actually be translated, most literally, is therefore I have decided. Therefore I have decided. And it's in the sense of a legal verdict. I have judged. And the I is emphatic. It's not just I have judged. It's I, James, have judged. He seems to be pointing to the fact that this is his decision. And he then renders a verdict that's applicable, not just for the church in Jerusalem, but for the entire church. You couple this with the fact that in Acts 21, when, when, when Paul comes to Jerusalem, he reports to James. And James tells Paul what he needs to, to do. He needs to take part in this Nazarite vow. And Paul does it. And you couple this with the fact that the first thing Peter does when he's delivered from Acts 12 is is tell the people gathering at John Mark's mother's house, he says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And the overall picture painted by the New Testament is that James is not just a leader of the church. He's the leader of the church. Even guys like Peter and Paul, as shocking as it may seem, seeing as how they're apostles, they report to James. James is at the head. When we turn to the pages of church history, we, we seem to find this point confirmed. Dr. William Varner, for instance, points out, he says, quote, the oldest complete copy of the New Testament that we possess, Codex Vaticanus, has James, the two Peters, the three Johns, and Jude immediately after Acts, then follow the Pauline epistles. In other words, the canon didn't originally go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and the Pauline epistles. It went Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, James, Peter, John. James, Peter, John, by the way, that's the same order that Paul lists the three pillars of the church in Galatians 2. Again, there seems to be significance to that order. Regarding this order to the canon, Varner continues, he says, Codex Alexandris also has this order. Further, the Eastern Orthodox Church still has maintained this order in their Bible, and the earliest edition of the Greek New Testament also adopted this ancient order. Essentially, the letter that we're about to get into here for the next few months, the epistle of James, was listed as the very first epistle in the New Testament for about a thousand years. The Jewish historian Josephus, I don't know if you've heard of him before or not, but we depend a lot on him for what we know about the political and cultural life of Israel in the first century. He wasn't a Christian, Josephus. He was a Jew. And so for our purposes, he wrote from kind of a detached perspective, meaning he's not writing about history as a Christian, as a believer. 
Anyways, he's a very well-known and respected historian from that time period. Really the, the preeminent Jewish historian of that time. And did, you, and did you know that there's only one Christian that Josephus ever mentions by name? And it isn't Peter or John or Paul. It's James. He tells us that James, quote, the brother of Jesus who is called Christ, he says that he was brought to trial and stoned to death sometime around the year 62 A.D. He doesn't mention any of the activities of the other apostles, even though the Christians were growing to be a substantial group by this time. Isn't isn't that interesting? I think that's interesting. Josephus apparently believed there was only one Christian worth mentioning by name, and that was James. Again, we underestimate the importance of James. I think we underestimate the importance of this epistle. What you have here with this letter of James is basically... The leader of the church writing to quote the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Note that, by the way. James writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Do you realize that Paul never writes like that? Paul will write to the individual churches that he planted, but he never writes to the whole church. Not James. James writes to the whole of the 12 tribes. You know why? It's because James enjoys a different kind of authority than Paul. While the churches Paul planted naturally looked to Paul as a source of authority, then uh, the the 12 tribes uniquely view James as their leader. And this is why he can begin the epistle simply, James. Not James the just. Not even James the brother of Jesus. Just James. James. He can do that because there's only one James that can be. There's only one James that can write with this kind of authority, and that is the James, the one and only James, the leader of the church. Hopefully you're starting to feel the the weight of this epistle a little bit as we start to get into this here. I mean, imagine you are rummaging around in some cave in Israel, and you happen to stumble upon a gospel written by Mary. Let's forget about whether it's legitimate or not. Let's just presume it was, okay? Say you came across one, or suppose you discovered what appeared to be another Pauline epistle. Wouldn't you cherish those writings? either because of the the closeness that Mary experienced with Jesus or because of the the authority that Paul possessed as an apostle. Well, in a sense, we have both of those things in James. So again, can you get a sense of the weight of this epistle? Well, if so, I'd like to try to add another layer to it. The, The address here is rather unique. Again, this letter is written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. I think this adds another layer to the way we understand James' authority. You see, when we consider the the level of authority James enjoyed, we have to ask the question, why? Why did James possess this almost unsurpassed authority in the church? At moments, it seems almost total and unquestioned. I mean, in Acts 15, he's basically making a decision for the entire church single-handedly. There's no discussion or vote or anything like that. How does that work? I mean, what about the plurality of elders? Shouldn't James have to make this decision along with them? And beyond that, why is James occupying this kind of supreme position rather than one of the twelve? Rather than Peter, for instance. And there are a few ways we could answer that question. One tradition in the early church says that the resurrected Christ appointed James to lead the church. And if that's true, that certainly explains why the church would look to him for, for leadership, right? That'd be a really good reason if Christ said, you're the leader of the church. Um, 
But that's just a legend. There's no way we can really verify that as fact. Another option is to say that by virtue of the fact that James grew up with Jesus, that he knew more about Jesus' thinking than anyone else, even more than the disciples, perhaps. And that would make sense, too. I mean, it would appear that James and the rest of the Lord's brothers uh, didn't believe in Jesus until either near the end of his public ministry or perhaps not even until after his resurrection. So it would seem odd to appoint to someone who came to faith so late as the leader of the church. But, but keep in mind, the, the twelve only spent around three and a half years with Jesus. And it would seem only uh, uh, maybe about a year and a half of that was spent in intensive daily interaction with Jesus. Jesus didn't start his public ministry until he was around 30. So depending on when he was born, James would have presumably spent many years with Jesus as they grew up together. So in spite of his late conversion, James would have still known more about Jesus' thinking than about anyone else, even the disciples. And that actually bears itself out in this letter, by the way. For instance, while, while James never directly quotes the Sermon on the Mount, what he says in this letter so closely mirrors what Jesus says in that message that it's generally assumed he had to be familiar with it. I like what, the way one commentator says it. He says that these allusions throughout the book of James are, quote, like the reminiscence of thoughts often uttered by the original speaker and in sinking into the heart of the hearer who reproduces them in his own manner. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, he's saying the content of James reflects someone who probably heard Jesus say the same basic things over and over and over again in different settings and who's reproducing the content of that teaching in his own words. And if this is so, this may explain why the church almost instinctively looked to James as its leader. The problem with this kind of thinking, though, is twofold. First, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. He said that the Holy Spirit would guide the Twelve to preserve the content of his teaching. So the Twelve's authority in this matter would apparently override even James. They're a more reliable source of authority. In fact, they were appointed for that purpose, to communicate Jesus' teaching to the world. So that doesn't seem to really explain why James would be the leader. And even if it did, it still wouldn't explain why James seems to enjoy an almost unquestioned level of authority in the early church. Like Again, like how could he make the Acts 15 decision almost single-handedly? There's no real precedent for that in the rest of the New Testament. And I think to answer this question, you have to go back in time and understand the, the gospel through the eyes of those to whom it was first delivered, and that was to Israel. The gospel came first to the Jews. If someone were to ask you, I want you to think about this. If someone were to ask you, what's the good news of the gospel? What would you say? I I would venture most of you would, would probably say something like eternal life. Or perhaps reconciliation with God. But either way, however you would state it, you'd probably frame it with reference to heaven and hell. Right? The gospel is the good news that Jesus cleanses us from our sins so that we can be in heaven with God, rather than suffer His wrath in hell. And this occurs, of course, simply by faith. Am I pretty close? Is that kind of how you would describe and frame the gospel? I would think I'm pretty close there. Well, what about the first Christians? What about the Jews? What did they understand the gospel to be about? Would they frame it in the same way that you and I would around heaven and hell, or, or would they see it through an additional lens? Of course, we just finished up the Gospel of Matthew, and if you were here with us for many of those messages, then I think you already know the answer to that question. For the Jewish Christian, 
the coming of Messiah was about eternal life. I don't want to take that away. It's not that that wasn't part of it. The coming of the Messiah was about eternal life, but it wasn't just about eternal life. It was about something else as well. For the Jewish Christian, the coming of the Messiah meant the restoration of Israel. It meant the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. In short, for them, the coming of Messiah signaled the time when the Davidic throne would be restored and the Christ would rule from Jerusalem as Israel became the preeminent nation on the earth. This is why, for instance, the Gospel of Matthew begins with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, emphasizing his Davidic descent because he's writing to Jewish Christians and he wants to show them how Jesus is the Davidic king who will fulfill all the promises made through Abraham. That's what those first Christians, Jewish Christians, anticipated about the coming of the Messiah. In fact, you go back to Acts chapter 1. We read this for our scripture reading today, right? In in, in Acts chapter 1, what are the disciples asking the resurrected Christ? They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still looking for the restoration of Israel because they knew that's what the Old Testament promised with the Messiah, the restoration of the Davidic throne. That's what the first Christians were looking for. They wanted the fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse, the return of the Christ to restore the nation of Israel, just as been promised in books like Daniel. We can't get away from this. The first Christians understood the gospel in terms of what it meant for Israel specifically. It was only later that they began to fully realize the larger implications of this gospel for Gentiles like us. Indeed, that was the whole point of the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council, to try to figure out what to do with all these Gentiles who were coming to Christ. They didn't anticipate that. In fact, in Acts 10, Peter had to be convinced through a vision that Gentiles even could participate in the Christ's new covenant promises. Before that, he didn't even think it was possible. You have to keep this in mind when you try to understand the position that James enjoyed by the time you get to Acts 15. You see, both Matthew and Luke, they give different genealogies for Jesus. And what they demonstrate is that Jesus was descended from David in two ways. Through Mary, Jesus is the physical descendant of David. Through Joseph, Jesus is the legal heir to the throne. Guess what this means about Jesus' brothers? Who are they descendants of? Right? Are you maybe starting to follow where I'm going here? What happens when a monarch dies without any heirs? Who's next in line? Or if the oldest prince dies, who's the next in line to take the throne? It would be his brothers, wouldn't it? And if Jesus is the promised Davidic king, and he's, I mean, he's not so much dead, right, but he's absent. He's ascended into heaven. Let me ask you, if you're a Jew who recognizes his claim to the throne and he's absent, who are you naturally going to look to as your sovereign in the meantime? Would it not perhaps be the next oldest brother? Would it not be someone like James? I think this is what explains Jesus' authority early in the church. Understand, today we see Christianity almost as a new religion, as something that begins with the life and death of Jesus Christ. The first Christians didn't see themselves that way. They saw themselves as faithful Jews. They were just continuing the Old Testament story by believing in the promised Davidic king. So like Peter, John, Paul, 
They weren't abandoning their their, uh, identity as Israelites when they believed in Jesus. Rather, they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of that identity. Those men didn't see themselves as starting a new institution called the church when they believed. They saw themselves as messengers of the king for the old institution, which is Israel. So you're Peter, and it's Acts 1, and the Messiah has ascended to heaven. Who are you? as an Israelite, going to look to as the natural leader of this institution called Israel. Is it you? Do you think that you're the leader of of Israel? Of course not. You have no claim to the throne. You don't have any Davidic blood, necessarily. In a sense, no one actually has a claim to the throne because the King Jesus has been resurrected unto eternal life. He's the one and only person who can legally claim the throne, but he's gone. So who would you naturally turn to as the rightful authority to lead Israel in his stead? Wouldn't it naturally be one of the members of the royal family? I think that's why you find guys like Peter and Paul essentially obeying James. It's because they understand that organizationally, the leader of Israel has to come from the Davidic line. And that's how they see themselves. They're Israelites in submission to the Davidic throne. In fact, I think this even explains why James renders the decision he does in Acts 15. If you go back to Acts 15, you can turn there if you'd like, look along here. He renders this verdict based on a passage that has to do with the Davidic throne. In Acts 15, he quotes Amos Amos 9 saying, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. That's in verses 15 to 18, if you're trying to find that there. He makes a reference to a prophecy about the Davidic kingdom. Do you know what that is? That's, That's the leader of Israel, a Davidic descendant, saying... The Old Testament said that after the Davidic throne was restored, Gentiles would turn to God. So my judgment is that we accept them as they are. There's no reason to force them to be a part of Israel. The whole question about the Mosaic Law that's coming up there is a question of whether Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved. Since the law was a covenant that was made with Israel. James, as the interim leader of Israel, says, my judgment is no. They don't need to become a part of Israel. And his judgment is respected because it's understood that he has that kind of authority. So you see, I wouldn't so much call James the leader of the church at this time. I don't think that's what you're seeing in the New Testament. I think that what you're seeing is that James is the leader of Israel, of believing Israel. The church sort of spans both across both Israelites and Gentiles. And among the Israelites, James is understood to be the de facto leader of the political organization known as as Israel. Now, read verse 1 one more time. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Do you see it now? Do you see what this letter is? This is a member of the royal family making address an address to his fellow Israelites. So can you start to feel the weight of this letter again? We, we underestimate James. We kind of brush off this epistle as kind of a second-rate book since it wasn't written by one of the twelve. That's not how the first readers would have understood it at all. It's, it's, like, it's like when the president you know, interrupts regularly scheduled programming to address the nation. That's what this letter is for them. 
It's their president issuing a kind of national address. It's the leader of Israel speaking to Israel. So understand this address in verse 1 would have immediately gotten everyone's attention, just as it should get your attention. That being said, what's James going to say in this letter? What's he going to tell his audience? Once again, I think we discover one of the the core issues right here in verse 1. These aren't just the 12 tribes that James, James is addressing. These are, quote, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. They're the 12, 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. Well, again, these aren't just any Jews that James is addressing. They're Jewish Christians. Uh, non-believing Jews would, have accepted, would not have accepted James' authority. Believing Jews would. So the dispersion here probably isn't a reference to just Israelites at large who have been scattered abroad as a result of the original exiles by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It would seem rather that he's writing to Jewish Christians who have lately been scattered abroad. Acts shows us that the early church was basically confined to Jerusalem at first, where James was. And it was only later that the gospel spread out from there. And what initially scattered the gospel abroad more than anything else? It was persecution. You go to Acts 8, and after Saul begins to persecute the church, the church begins to scatter beyond the borders of Israel. And as they go, they preach the gospel to other Jews, and eventually even to Gentiles. By Acts 11, we learn that they've gone as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And so as James writes to the 12 tribes, he writes to them as they're dispersed throughout the Roman world by this initial wave of persecution. Why would James write these scattered Christians? Well, it's possible that he'd write them to instruct new converts in the basics of the faith. Again, understand that James probably writes this letter before Acts 15, since there's no mention of the Gentile question, which is really the pressing issue in the church for quite a while. Nor does he quote any other New Testament book, meaning that it probably doesn't come far enough after Acts 15 to to make the Gentile issue no longer relevant. So you put it before Acts 15, and yet after the initial waves of persecution that we find in Acts, and that probably means that it was written sometime between the years 44 and 49 A.D., That not only makes this the first New Testament book written, but it's also written before the church has any sort of consistent structure in place to guide it. Again, the first real mission effort wasn't planned. It was forced by persecution. They weren't ready for that. This means that these new converts that are coming into the church are perhaps coming in without any sort of ecclesiastical structure tying them back to the authority of the church, and they're most definitely coming in without any kind of written corpus to guide them regarding the basics of Christianity. Again, not even the Gospel of Matthew was written by this point in time. There were no Gospels written, nothing like that. So these new converts need some kind of authoritative instruction about how they should live as Christians, and who better to do that than the de facto ruler of Israel, James. That's one possible reason for why James writes. Again, a lot of the material in this letter repeats the basic teachings of of Jesus. It it mirrors the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. Maybe that's James' point, to, to give basic instruction to the faith. However, when you consider the content of this book, there seems to be a better option, and that's to instruct the church regarding how to live under the trial of this persecution and dispersion. One of the things we're going to see come up over and over again in James is his concern with the rich and the poor. It would appear that there's some kind of tension that's erupted between the rich and the poor in the church. The rich are abusing the poor. The church is showing deference to the rich over the poor. The rich are hardening their hearts to the poor and refusing to help them in a time of need. 
That's a consistent theme. In short, it would appear that the initial harmony that we find early on in Acts is not occurring in the dispersion. In Acts, the people were selling what they had and and holding it in common, and they were doing this to the degree that, that no one in the church had any need. That's apparently not what's happening in the church when James writes. Do you know what will cause that kind of disruption? Suffering will. Persecution will. When things get tough, like really tough, it's a natural tendency for people to want to provide for their own future financial security by refusing to give to others. And this seems to be the major theme of the book. James James wants to demonstrate how this kind of selfishness in the church undermines the heart of the gospel. And he's going to weave in and out of how our concerns for the future should affect the way we live right now. And he's going to do this while he talks about how to process suffering and why we should be generous to one another and where that generosity will come from in the midst of suffering. And he's going to frame all of that discussion in a very simple two-part wisdom structure. There's the wisdom that's from above and then there's the wisdom that's from below. That's how you should see this book. It's a, it's a contrast between the wisdom that's from above and the wisdom that's from below. You see, this letter is really a, a tale of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom which will be established when Christ renews the world at His second coming, a, a kingdom which is, which is governed by the wisdom of God. And then there's the kingdom of Satan, a kingdom which is currently in effect, which currently governs the way of this world, and which is, uh, is safe to say has been instrumental in the church's persecution. But it's a kingdom that will also be destroyed at the time of Christ's coming. The de facto leader of Israel is writing to these missionaries and new converts, and as he hears of the turmoil that's occurring in the church, he's asking them, he's saying, which kingdom do you belong to? You need to remind me once again, where does your citizenship lie? Where does your allegiance lie? You who hoard your riches and close your heart to your poor brethren, do you belong to Christ's kingdom? Are you living in light of Christ's second coming? And you poor, you poor who lust after the things of this world and show deference to the rich, how about you? Are you? You who speak ill about your brother or those who fight and contend with one another, what about you? What kingdom do you belong to? As James brings this question to the table and then describes what wisdom looks like when set against the backdrop of this future kingdom that's going to come down from heaven with the return of Christ, what we discover, what we're going to discover is that the wisdom that's from above presents a very different set of values from what we would naturally esteem to be good or wise. James is going to disclose a a wisdom that proclaims that suffering is a kind of blessing. That riches are almost a curse. That the weak shall be exalted and the mighty shall be laid low. And perhaps most surprisingly of all, it's a wisdom that says that true joy and lasting satisfaction is found not in independence and self-assertion, but in humility and faith. That's what this epistle is about. It's about our identity as Christians. The idea is that that in Christ we belong to a new kingdom, a kingdom with an inverse set of values, all the while living in a world that is flooded with thinking that is earthly and demonic. 
How do we navigate this world and maintain our Christian testimony while surrounded by such hostile forces? James is going to show us. And what we're going to find is that it's nothing like what we would expect. As James engages in this discussion and and discloses this wisdom from above to us, I think we're going to discover that he has something to say to each of us. Are you suffering, for instance? If so, James has something to tell you about how to understand that suffering. He has something to tell you about what suffering looks like from God's perspective. Are you struggling with sin? Do you have idols that you have a hard time letting go? In short, do you find yourself struggling with a love for the things of this world? If so, then James has something to say to you as well. He wants to help you repent and to find freedom in Christ by demonstrating to you the foolishness of your earthly thinking. Or maybe it's not a love for this world that you struggle with, but faith. You're struggling with sin because you have such a hard time trusting in the promises of God. Again, James has something to say about that. Or maybe it's not a love for this world that you struggle with, but, but, or even faith that you struggle with, but, but love. Just plain love. Do you have a hard time loving other people? Do you struggle to put the needs of others before your own needs? If so, then James would like to have a word with you. He has something to tell you about that. Maybe you're just unsure about what righteousness is supposed to look like. You wonder what obedience really is. Again, James has answers for that. He's very interested in telling us righteousness, what righteousness looks like in action. Of course, then again, I don't think we could expect anything less from a man known as James the Just. I think we're going to find that James is a man who is incredibly pious, who has a great zeal for God and his righteousness, and who knows a great deal about what God's values look like in action. And so I think this should be an exciting time for us. You can only imagine... (laughs) You can only imagine what those first Christians would have thought when they first heard news of this letter. Just imagine. There's, again, there's no such thing as a New Testament yet. All you have is the Old Testament and a knowledge that Jesus has fulfilled those scriptures. You've since been scattered abroad, and the harmony that you experience in the church in Jerusalem is not taking place on the gospel's frontiers. You're confused about the suffering you're experiencing, confused about the state of the church, and then you hear that James... The Lord's brother, the leader of Israel, has put together a letter to try to set things straight, to try to unify the church by reminding Christians of their calling and by telling them how to interpret the events that you've been experiencing. I imagine those first believers would have devoured the content of this letter, so eager they would have been for some type of guidance, and then to receive it from one so esteemed as James. It would have been great hope when this letter was first received, hope that James could bring order and perspective to the chaos they had been experiencing. We may not share in the suffering of those early Christians, but what we do share is the struggle of trying to follow Christ in a world that's turned upside down by sin. We may not know what it's like to really be persecuted for Christ's sake, but we know what it's like to suffer, and we know what it's like to be tempted, and we know what it's like to love this world more than Christ. And we've seen disorder and selfishness in the church. Those aren't struggles that are confined to the experience of Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago. They're struggles that are common to every Christian in every age. And here in this letter, James, the Lord's brother, the man who perhaps is perhaps most acquainted with the Lord's teaching and who's definitely a unique representative of his authority, he's going to show us the path of wisdom that leads us through these struggles. 
so that Christ might be magnified in us. As we begin this study, let's pray that God would bless this church by opening our hearts to receive this heavenly wisdom together. Let's pray.